Hey caffeinators, welcome to the Vet Tech Cafe. The Vet Tech Cafe is a podcast centered around veterinary technicians and nurses, hosted by myself, Dave Cowan, and my good friend, Jeff Backus. We strive to discuss current issues facing our profession and give our colleagues a voice and a medium to enter into these discussions. Our guests are experts in the veterinary field that we hope can help our listeners work towards dealing with these issues, as well as coming up with solutions that can lead to change. If you have a question, comment, or would like to be a guest on the Vet Tech Cafe, please contact us at vettechcafe at gmail.com, or you can find us at our website, vettechcafe.com. One thing we would ask of you, our listeners, is to rate and review us on whatever podcast platform you're listening to. We're not exactly sure how or why this helps us, but apparently it does. So without further ado, come on in, grab yourself a cup of coffee, and get ready for another episode of the Vet Tech Cafe. caffeinators welcome back to the vet tech cafe where we are now accepting reservations for your 2024 staff holiday happy new year everybody um we'd like to thank all of our caffeinators for your continued support of the vet tech cafe and um wearing our merchandise and to our patreons for supporting us we really really uh, appreciate the support um, if you're new to the Vet Tech Cafe, head over to vettechcafe.com. Uh, you can see the info about Dave and I and who we are and why do we do this. Um, all of our channels, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, um, and we do have a YouTube channel as well where we upload all the raw video from our Taproom episodes. So head on over there, check us out. But if you've been here for a while, we really, really do appreciate the support. Dave, how's it going out there? Uh, it is good here. Um, North Carolina winter is... It, it still fascinates me where some days it is like 20 degrees and like today it's, it's 60 and sunny. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's good here. I, I did my, my last running race of the year uh, this past weekend and I'm still a little sore from it, but uh-huh. otherwise we are doing good. How are things going good. out there? Good, good, good. It's uh, it's warmed back up. It's currently 82 degrees here today, oh, which for, so jealous. for so early jealous. December is unacceptable for me. Um, Totally acceptable for me. (laughs) Watching a couple of football games this weekend, the one in New England that was cold and rainy, and I was like, dang it, I want that. But anyway, here we are. Otherwise, we're good. Um, We live in the wrong areas of the country. Like you, (laughs) I should live there and you should live here. That's how it should work. Or or even a little further north, I'd be fine with that. Yeah, so... (laughs) Uh, well, let's let's go ahead and jump in. We've got another awesome episode today. Um, we have Darcy Palmer coming by the Vet Tech Cafe today. She's been a credentialed veterinary technician for over 20 years. She earned her VTS in anesthesia and analgesia in 2006 while working at Washington State University Veterinary Teaching Hospital. Followed that with a position at Auburn University College of Veterinary Medicine and is now currently at Tuskegee uh, University College of Veterinary Medicine, where she provides both didactic lectures and clinical hands-on training to the veterinary students. I think we're going to talk a good bit about working as a technician in academia today. Um, In addition to the clinical work, she serves as the Academy of Veterinary Technicians in Anesthesia and Analgesia Executive Secretary. Um, Her passion for educating continues outside of the teaching hospital as she's been an instructor for VSPN since 07, lecturing and writing on topics of anesthesia and analgesia nationally, and has been teaching a two-module small animal anesthesia course that she created since 2010. So Darcy, thank you very much for taking some time out to come by and chat with us today. Um, What can we get you for a cup of coffee or caffeinated beverage of choice? No, I try to stay away from caffeine. I learned a long time ago that it turns me into a squirrel, but um, I will, I do love a good Starbucks hot chocolate. Okay. okay. We'll take oh, yeah. that. That's, that's easy enough. Well, it's not going to be Starbucks because this isn't a Starbucks. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it'll, any, it'll be, any hot chocolate. It'll be work. our version. Absolutely. Um, there we go. So if you don't mind, take us through your career path. I know I hit on a couple of high points there, but kind of what got you into veterinary medicine stops along the way and kind of what's you know been pushing you to go on this long all the way through and what you're doing today. Sure. Well, um, you know, growing up, I always had a real strong interest in animals. I showed horses in 4-H all through grade school, all through high school. But it wasn't until my aunt gifted me a 10-week-old pot pig uh, my sophomore year in high school. 
that um, I actually got interested in veterinary medicine because, you know, a pig needs to have vet care, regular vet care. Um, And so that very first appointment that I took him to, I just kind of randomly asked, I'm like, hey, can I just come hang out and see what's going on? And they were awesome. They let me do that. So I started volunteering. That turned into a kennel assistant job. And then that turned into a veterinary assistant job. And I ended up loving it so much that I worked there all through high school. And so it was a mixed animal practice. So we were doing small animal, large animal, anything in between. Um, And then my senior year of high school, they sold that practice. And one of the doctors moved on to an exclusive equine practice that he opened up. And so I left for college, but then on the summers, I would come back and work with him uh, in the practice. And I loved it. Um, So when I graduated college, I came back and worked for him full time. And that is when he told me about the veterinary technology career field. And until that point, I actually had never heard of it. Um, I went and did a bachelor's in animal science. And so I was in Washington State. That's where I'm originally from. So at the time, they had an alternative pathway. Um, So this is way back in 2000. And that alternative pathway just meant that he... um, did a bunch of paperwork for me. And with my hours that I had already spent with him, that allowed me to challenge uh, to take the VTNE. So I did that, passed and got licensed in Washington State. And that put me on this career path that um, I've been on for 23 years now. Um, Interestingly, I met my now husband at that practice. And he um, was the one that was interested in applying to veterinary school. And so um, he got in and that took us down to Pullman, Washington, where I had gone to get my bachelor's degree. And at that time, I was like, I don't really know what I'm going to do. And one of my friends told me that they were accepting applications for veterinary technicians at the vet school. So I was like, what do I have to lose? I'll just go ahead and apply. But I was very specific on that application that I only wanted an equine veterinary technician position because that's all I knew. And uh, so they called me the very next day and they were like, hey, we love your application, but we don't have anything in equine. However, we are desperate for anesthesia technicians. Would you be interested? And my first reaction was, hell no. I was scared (laughs) to death of anything anesthesia and I... So I was absolutely terrified, but at that point, I didn't really have anything else to do. So I was like, you know what? I'll just go interview. And so I interviewed with the three anesthesiologists that were there at the time, and they completely sold me on the position. So I was still scared to death. I was still very apprehensive, but I was like, let's just give this a chance. And um, that was the best decision that I have ever made for myself. Um, I was very fortunate in the anesthesiologists that were there at that time. Uh, They were very passionate with educating their veterinary support staff. They knew the importance of educating and teaching skills to the veterinary technicians. Um, They they basically taught us like we were an extension of them. Uh, And so they were very vested in doing rounds with us, teaching us outside of the clinic, um, any kind of skills that we could do, they were willing to teach us. Um, So it was just a great environment to learn in. And that is really what instilled my love and passion for anesthesia was that early on mentorship right there. I mean, don't get me wrong. It was it was a very steep learning curve. I can remember uh, myself and another technician started within about two weeks of our of each other. And there were times where we would both be on the gurneys in the sterile corridor, just bawling our eyes out over some case that had not gone the way that we wanted it to. And so I remember lots of those episodes, but the support system there was so great that, you know, no matter how tough of a day it got, it was, it was always a learning environment. And uh, it just really instilled that passion that I still carry today for, for anesthesia. Uh, I have a I have a quick question before we before we keep going. Um, you said that when they wanted you to do anesthesia, you said hell no. And so, <laughs> yep. so my question for you now is is as somebody who is highly involved in the AVTAA, how how do you take that experience and say, look, this is where I was at, and I was terrified. 
how do you how do you teach newer students or new veterinary students like how to get over that fear of anesthesia because that's a huge thing I I see in in our our profession. Absolutely. And and I I think that where it starts is just having a good foundation education background, you know, because I took that alternative pathway, I didn't have anything except what that veterinarian had taught me. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm in doing anesthesia on small animal procedures, I'm in doing anesthesia on horses, and there wasn't a lot of background learning, like whatever I learned, it was me with my nose in a book. And so my change in environment to working with people who were anesthesiologists and other technicians who had been doing it forever, that's where I really learned to gain my confidence. Um, And so that's what I would say to anyone who is interested is to just find a location that is willing to help mentor you. Because I I think that that is, is a very strong component of of being engaged in this specialty is just having strong mentorship and then always be willing to learn. Like, I mean, even 23 years in, I'm still learning new things. So I've got to be willing to open a book, research a topic, talk to my colleagues, reach out to see what other people are doing and thinking. And that's how I learn and grow every day. You you said in there that you kind of started out, you went to a vet appointment and then we're just like, Hey, can I come in and watch and hang out? And I feel like so many of us, yeah, we get that a lot grow, grew up court kind of in this field in that time. I wonder if that actually still happens today. Like, you know, like this, like can, you know, just kids that are there with their parents for an appointment, like, can they just go shadow on a Saturday? And like, does that still happen? I don't know. You know, that's a good, that's a good question. I, you know, I did a small little stint in uh, private practice in between university jobs. And I know that we did it there. Like if there was a, a, a child that came in with an appointment with their parents for an appointment and they wanted to come back and get a tour of the back room or whatnot, we were always willing to take them back and show them. Um, So I think that that's really a a strong way to get people in this field is just to let them in and see see what's behind the doors. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Um, My question would be, so you had mentioned you, you challenged to take the VTNE by an alternate route. Did you ever go back to an AVMA program or are you still alternate route? And I'm just curious, because obviously you've made a great career. Yeah. Have, have there been any ever like doors closed to you because of that or? There have. So my um, my license doesn't transfer between states. Although interestingly, I do have my CVT from Oregon State. Um, I think it's just such a close state to Washington State that they accepted my Washington State license. So I do have active licenses in Oregon and Washington. Um, If I wanted to, I could go get a license in the state of Wisconsin right now as well. Um, And certain practice acts, I know Virginia, um, I would be able to easily get my license in Virginia. Um, But certain practice acts like Alabama currently will not accept the fact that even though I'm licensed in other states because I don't have have that AVMA diploma, um, I cannot get credential. I cannot get a license to practice in the state of Alabama. I guess um, I did. So when I first moved to Alabama, I did enroll in San Juan, the online distance program, and I finished a year and a little bit. Um, but I also, that's when I started on this speaking circuit. And so it was very hard for me to justify school versus doing what I'm passionate about and, and starting to speak. So it became a challenge for me to do both. And so it's hard for me at this point after gaining my VTS to justify having just a piece Mm -hmm. of paper that, that says that. So, um, I'm fortunate enough that the jobs that I've taken, you know, since moving out of the Washington state have allowed me, um, you know, to operate in this capacity with my VTS and not necessarily the license, but um, it is something that, that does bother me. Um, but it is hard to justify yeah, I hear you. I hear the you. time I'm, going back. I'm in the same Pre- boat. Preaching and, to the choir. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so let's let's look at the the veterinary technician profession itself. So you you've got a, a long career like like Jeff and I have, and how have you seen it changed over the years? And what are some strides that we need to do to make it better? Um, you know, I, I I've always been a, a champion for this profession. I I think that you know a lot of the times I feel like 
veterinary technology kind of lives in the shadows, but we very much are a standalone profession. Um, I, you know, I've seen I've seen great strides forward, and I've seen a lot of strides backwards. Unfortunately, <laughs> um, you know, the the current state of this profession has me a little bit concerned, to be honest with you. Um, I know that, you know, as a profession, we've been dealing with these quote unquote hidden issues of burnout, compassion, fatigue, lack of adequate pay, lack of adequate respect. And I think that, uh, you know, this crazy pandemic really brought all of those things to light. And my concern stems from the fact that I feel like our attrition rate has just exponentially increased. And it's hard to justify having somebody stay in this profession long term now just because these issues that have been around for so long, just I don't feel like there's any positive growth in making those changes happen. You know, there's a lot of talk and I think the talk is really great, but the groups that need to be doing some action, it just seems to still be lacking Hmm. in my opinion. Yeah. And I, we've talked about the, I mean, we talked about this with every guest and uh, it's, it's something where we, yes, we are a standalone profession. However, and Jeff, you say this a lot is, is that we need the support of the veterinarians to absolutely to help us get to where we need to be. Cause with, without yeah. them, we're, we're kind of stuck. Um, and, and hopefully that's, that's something that at some point they will realize that yes, we are, we are valued members of the teams and, we, the places that we work in will not survive without us. Exactly. Um, But it's, it's just, I hate that we're in like this, this limbo mode of like, we know where we want to get, but we're still like struggling to get there. Yeah. And trying to get out of our own way sometimes with some of the the issues that we're dealing with is very difficult. Agreed. Um, But yeah, I I totally, I, I feel what you're saying there. We've, uh, Darcy, we've talked a lot on this show. We've had a few different technicians that have worked in or, or are currently working in academia. I certainly did some time at Tufts that sounded terrible that I did time at Tufts, <laughs> but actually in some ways that's also appropriate. Um, you did a stint. I did a, I did a four-year stint at Tufts University. Um, and, you know, but like, I'm curious how, because you've been now at three College of Veterinary, Colleges of Veterinary Medicine. Yeah. Like how, how do How do they view the profession? How do you feel like you are viewed and our role is viewed? And and also, how is that um, taught to, I guess, the students? You know, I think that's the big thing. Like Dave was just saying, um, you know, we need the veterinarian support. And I'm hopeful that as more and more new vets come out and the older ones retire, that'll help turn the tide somewhat. But like, I'm curious your viewpoints because you've been to a few now. Yeah, absolutely. And so at every university that I've worked at, the veterinary technicians play a very large role in teaching these veterinary students. Um, and I think that where the technicians really play a strong role is that clinical application to cases. Um, and, you know, it's it's the technicians that the students look to for assistance in restraining an animal, making sure that they've got everything that they need in order to go into the exam room with the doctor and give their case and explain things. Um, but I agree with you. I think that in general, veterinary schools have not done a really good job of instilling the the different roles to veterinary students. Um, and so, you know, I've I've kind of made it my mission just in my role currently at Tuskegee. That's one of the main things that I stress um, in one of my classes that I teach for the sophomores is is role delineation. And so, you know, I go in and I explain, okay, you guys are going to be doctors. What does this mean? What are your career paths? What can you do? Well, here's the technicians and here's what it takes to become a technician. And one of the first questions that I ask them at the, at the start of the lecture is how many of them have worked in the veterinary profession as a veterinary technician? And at least three quarter, half to three quarters of the class always raise their hand because they're in the clinic during the summers before they gone into vet school. And then I pose the question, how many have you actually <laughs> have taken the VTNE? 
And one, maybe two people out of the class raise their hand. And so that is what I use as the stepping stone to explain the difference between a credentialed veterinary technician and a veterinary assistant. And, you know, providing the numbers and explaining to them the importance of every role in the veterinary healthcare team, I think is kind of eye-opening. So I, I started doing that for the freshmen and really focused on it for the sophomores and just explaining the difference and how important it is to understand what role the, the credentialed veterinary technician plays. And then as they move on to their junior year and senior year, you know, their junior year, I'm like, all right, you guys have to do everything. And the reason that you have to do everything is because when you go out into practice and our doctors, you need to know what you expect your technicians to do for you. And then when they come on clinics, it's the same thing. I'm like, you guys need to set up your anesthesia machine. You need to get all of your supplies out because if you don't know what you want out, how are you going to ensure that your technical staff is then doing what you want them to do to set up for anesthesia? So it's kind of putting them in that role and then teaching them, hey, your technical staff will be doing this for you. And that's pretty much all throughout the anesthesia lectures that I give. I'm explaining to them, once you are a doctor, this is a technician role. They will be doing this for you. And then you will be the one signing off on the drug protocol when they bring it to you for approval. So things like that. And it's just a different kind of dialogue that I have with them, you know, starting them out, making sure they understand the fundamental principles, but then leading them on to believe, to, to understand the importance of the fact that this is a technician skill and this is a check technician job that should be done for them once they're out in practice. That's a, that's an interesting way of framing it. And we, and we've talked to other people, you know, about, about vet students in that, why are we teaching vet students how to do technician skills? They should have technicians to do those things, but you make a great point of the fact that, and, and Robin, my partner has made this, this point all the time is that sometimes you, these vet students are going to get into practices where they're in a very rural area and they don't yep. have technicians. So they will have to do those things, but that's, that's another way of, of framing it in that you got to know what you have you're expecting of your of your students yeah. or yeah. of your technicians to do that's that's really a great way of putting it and and i think that you know we would all i mean i would love to be able to say that every veterinary practice has a credentialed vet tech right. but the truth is just that is just it's just not the reality not going to happen and i don't know if that's going to happen in the next 5 or 10 years and that's what i'm concerned about and so these veterinarians that are going out into practice if they end up hiring a vet assistant and that's all that is in their practice, they need to know it well enough to teach them. Hmm. And it's unfortunate. And I, I'm all for, you know, making sure that a veterinarian does veterinarian jobs and a technician does technician jobs. But the reality is I'm mostly concerned about patient advocacy and ensuring that at least from an anesthesia standpoint, that proper anesthesia is getting done and that takes the team. And so if you put credentials aside, everybody's working for the better of the patient. And that requires the, the DVM to step up and provide that training. Now, that being said, I would 100% prefer that a DVM say, hey, you know, I can I see that our practice as a whole needs some training. And so let's call on a VTS and anesthesia and analgesia, or let's have a lunch and learn with an anesthesiologist. Let's bring somebody in who can provide the content that I want all staff members to be trained on. And then moving forward, we will adapt those concepts and use them in our practice. Hmm. So I do offer that to the students too. <laughs> they always uh, tell me that they're keeping my, uh, my number close at hand when they go out and I'm like, I'm all for that. You just yeah. let me know because that's, you know, that is my way to help continue to contribute to patient care out in the field when they're, let's, you know, they're out doing these rural practices where they don't have credential technicians. So uh, I'm, I'm curious, we've had guests on that have worked in academia, our, our one of our co-hosts being one of them. And we often say a lot about the fact that, uh, you know, this is how it is in the school and this is how we teach them. This is how things are going. But really, we only have that one source of information. Like Jeff only has that one source of information on how academia works. You having had worked at, you've got three teaching hospitals that you've worked at. Yeah. Um, so take a take a, a step back and think about those three three different teaching hospitals. Are there major differences in how 
uh, technicians are treated, how you how you teach the students, or is it all pretty much the same? It is very different, and I will I will say that my role at Tuskegee University has been the most different from the other two. Um, you know, at the first university practice that I worked at, where I started, um, you know, they were very they were very much a technician driven hospital. They knew the importance of a veterinary technician and all the services of that hospital. Um, and so they relied on their technicians to run the day. And then the doctors were just there to have that conversation with the students on the diagnosis, what diagnostics were going to be done, how we were going to go about doing the case, setting it all up. And then they would turn it over to the technicians to actually have that plan carried out. Um, at other universities, um, I've seen a different approach. Um, you know, my last university was very technician driven at first, and then there was a change, um, that was due to administration. And I saw the environment of that hospital completely change, unfortunately. Um, and it it became one where technicians were basically told that they were replaceable. And <sighs> so the demeanor of the technicians at that hospital just decreased significantly. Um, that did, I mean, that was the, the main reason that I left, but it, it was a contributing factor. Um, it was just the environment there was such that you were replaceable and you were to do what you were told and that was it. And so the atmosphere and the environment of a university teaching hospital can absolutely make or break your enjoyment there. Um, and so it, that was a big focus of why I left that particular university because I was not about to let the love of my job be adversely affected due to the environment that I was working in. And I was fortunate enough that I was in a position that I could make that choice. I know that a lot of people are not in that position and that's really unfortunate. Um, but it did allow me to advocate for myself when I came to Tuskegee because I knew exactly what I wanted in a position at a university. And so I was able to come in and say, this is what I want to do. Um, are you interested in, this is what I have to offer. Are you interested in, allowing me to come on board. And I basically had to write my own job description here at Tuskegee coming in and, and saying, because I wanted to do some teaching. Um, in fact, the only way, the only reason that I'm at Tuskegee now is because the criticalist that was here at the time, he knew me from the old university and he contacted me to do some locum lectures because they didn't have anybody in anesthesia. And because I lived just 30 minutes away, I was, I was sure I'll be happy to do that. So I actually locum lectured for Tuskegee for two years oh, before wow. <laughs> they asked me if I wanted a job. And then that's when I turned around and said, I would absolutely entertain a job. But here's the thing. I want to be able to teach. I don't just want to be a quote unquote, just a technician. I want to have this extra responsibility. Um, and so then they worked with me to develop that position and then COVID hit. So it got <laughs> delayed by like eight months, but yeah, um, yeah. I did eventually start here and um, I love it here. I love the environment. I love the people. Um, it's just, you know, everybody, I mean, there are, there are some issues, um, but it's, it's very much a teamwork atmosphere here. Everybody works together. It's a small university. So I think that there is some merit in that um, where everybody is working together for the ultimate goal of making sure that our patients are comfortable and getting the procedures that they need. And, um, and then student learning is, you know, is the other main aspect of our day where everybody is engaged in student learning and educating and teaching and that kind of thing. So that's the environment that I thrive in the most. My, my comment on, and, and this is going to be my, my sassy comment on, uh, <laughs> when they say that you're replaceable, uh, it, it, it just makes me want to say by who, like who, who exactly who, we're not overflowing with technicians. We're not overflowing right. with assistants in this. Field. Right. Exactly. Who's going to replace them. Right. Like, yep. I just don't, I don't understand yeah, and, that, and that thought I don't, process. I don't yep. know what university that was, but I know where Tufts was. It was in central Massachusetts in a rural town of. Yeah. Yep. There's nothing around there. Yep. People. They, I mean, we're an hour out of Boston. There's, yeah. they, like, there's yeah. not a, 
Nobody's yep. moving to Grafton, Massachusetts to go <laughs> yep, work yep. at, you know. And, well, and and it's, actually, Jeff, you did. I mean, I did, but, my, <laughs> but, but I had a reason to, aside yeah. from the job. But yeah. 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 yeah anyway. it's, it's unfortunate, but, you know, it has... You know, I, I'm so far out removed from it now that, you know, I don't know much of go- that's right. going on. But I, I've, i you know, for a couple years after, I, I knew that it's a revolving door there. I mean, they can't keep support staff. And I, for whatever reason, they've, they've made some changes to the administration, and I wish them well. Um, I, I just it, – it's a very difficult environment right there. Yeah. And anybody that I've talked to that has worked there and has left, it's the same thing over yeah. and over and over yeah. again. And so yeah. it's 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 – uh, it's very sad and it's unfortunate. Yeah. But. Yeah. And it's tough because it, it's, I mean, I'm sure you had the same experience. Like I love those coworkers when I was there. I, I yeah. love those people. That's actually the reason I stayed as long as I did. Yep. And, yep. and many of them are still there and, and doing the work and God bless them because I, I, I know how hard it is yep. and, and where I was at. And yeah, it, it's, uh, it's tough. Yeah, Stop. it is. It's it's it is it's heartbreaking too because I yeah. look back and see what it was and then what it's turned into and it's it's just very sad. Yeah, but. absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Well, we are about we're halfway through. Yeah, somehow. basically. Wow, that went fast. <laughs> I, know, sometimes, sure I mean, sometimes these conversations we just get to chatting and 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 suddenly you look down and you're like, "Oh, it's been 30 minutes." Uh, so yeah. why don't we take our awesome. little break here? We'll pay some bills and we'll be back. Okay. The Vet Tech Cafe is sponsored by BetterHelp. Caffeinators, at the Vet Tech Cafe, you know we like to focus on mental health. If you're struggling with depression, burnout, compassion fatigue, or any of the other mental health challenges we discuss on our podcast, getting professional help is a great first step. We all need help with things like learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries, which empowers you to be the best version of yourself. It isn't just for those who've experienced major mental health challenges. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. Dave, I've used BetterHelp. Um, I had really good success with it. I really liked that it was entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. You can also switch therapists at any time for no additional cost. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your therapist, and you'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. They really make it easy for you to get the help you need. Discover your potential with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash VetTechCafe today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash VetTechCafe. It's time to invest in yourself. Be well, caffeinators. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Vet Tech Cafe, where we are into our fifth year, Jeff. Is that where mm-hmm. we're at? Oof. Yeah. It does That's not awesome. seem like it's been five years, but <laughs> well, I guess we're in the middle of five years, right? Yeah. 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 Anyways, uh, Darcy, we, we like to ask all of our guests how they deal with their own mental health. And, and you know, you just kind of brought up something uh, before the break about uh, the, for lack of a better term, workplace culture that was brought up in one of the schools you're working at. Um, how do you deal with your mental health? How do you how do you stay sane? And, and I know you're doing <laughs> a lot in your in your job. So how do you how do you keep yourself centered? You know, I, so my, the whole ordeal that I went through at that last university, it really did take a toll on my mental health. I I really had to take a step back and do some soul searching. Um, And so what, um, what I did was reach out to colleagues, Um, you know, Tosh and Steven, um, being that we run the Anesthesia Nerds Facebook page, um, those were the two that I really leaned on a lot. Um, and just basically, you know, where do I go from here? How do I go forward? Um, you know, and they were both really big on telling me to just take some time, um, take some time to just stay out of vet med, uh, refocus things, and just make sure that you still have the passion for what you want to do. And then it, you know, if that spark happens again, run with it, but give your, give yourself some grace and take some time to just kind of relax. And so I, um, when I left the university, I took about two months, um, to just 
do nothing. And I just kind of refocused. And, um, you know, I was still very passionate about anesthesia, but I, I'll, I didn't know if I really wanted to work in that environment again. Um, and that's when, you know, and, and one of my biggest fears with leaving the university was what the heck am I going to do? Because in the area that I'm in, there wasn't a lot of options. And that's when uh, an opportunity came knocking on my door. Um, and so it was a private practice specialty boarded surgeon who was looking for somebody and gave me another opportunity. And so, um, you know, it, it took me a solid year to get over that whole ordeal. And I think I, it was a combination of giving myself some grace, talking about it when I needed to talk, um, and just not expecting things to be a hundred percent as they were. Um, so I had a lot of people in my corner that were willing to just lend an ear. So I, I think that that's the biggest thing that really helped me with my mental health. Excellent. Excellent. Um, so getting back to um, teaching and, and working in academia, how do you feel that the vet students uh, perceive you? Because are there, are there a lot of veterinary technicians teaching at the school or is it, is it mostly DVMs that are teaching? No, we're, we are such a small school. There are only two technicians that are credentialed here right, right now. Right. We we do have a couple veterinary assistants as well, um, but there's just two of us that are credentialed. Um, so, I, you know, I, I think that, that the receptiveness is good. I mean, I was, I'm a, I'm a huge advocate of the fact that I am a technician. And so going into the classroom or going into labs or anything that I do with the students, I make it a point right off the bat to say, hey, I am not a doctor. I am not a DVM. I am a credentialed vet tech. I have my VTS. And I, I take the time to explain that. And um, all they they all start off trying to call me Dr. Palmer. And I'm like, no, I'm not a doctor. And plus that makes me sound super old. So please stop. <laughs> <laughs> but I just always come right behind him and say, no, I'm not a doctor. You can call me Miss Darcy. Don't call me Mrs. Palmer because I hate you. I sound old if you call me by my last name. So um, I, I just make that correction right off the bat. And within the, you know, a couple of weeks, they're all calling me by my name. So, um, but it does take some time to get past that because they're used to only having DVMs right. be their, their instructors or their professors or whatnot. Um, but I, I think that, I've relied on my knowledge and skill to be what allows me to go into the classroom and um, teach. Um, I, I teach from a very practical standpoint, and so I use a lot of clinical case examples from my years of experience, and I think that that holds their interest. At least that's, you know, I, I capture them early on with the information that I'm bringing to the classroom. Um, I do a lot of hands-on um exams. And so we're not doing boring old multiple choice type exams. My stuff is all hands-on practical things that they need to know in the clinic setting. So I think that that has been one way that um, I've been able to get in really good with the students. Um, I, I am the only anesthesia person here at Tuskegee, so they are kind of, uh, you know, they don't really have another option. Uh, but my door is always open, and they all know that. So starting at freshman year, when I'm doing a couple lectures and some labs for them, all through their fourth year of vet school, they have me to get in touch with at any time if they have an anesthesia-related question. So. Um, you know, I, and I, I think that another thing is that I'm always asking them questions. And so I'm, I'm posing questions to them to make them think clinically. And then in turn, I'm learning about different ways that they're learning. So I'm learning at the same time they're learning. So we kind of feed off of each other. And I think that that's allowed me to really make a connection with the students. Um, so but I, you know, last year, one of the students got me a t-shirt that said educated drug dealer. And so I was like, <laughs> I will definitely wear this. Heck yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, how about with, uh, with other like DVM faculty? Like, I mean, are you, are you kind of viewed, do you feel like viewed as a, as a peer as an equal or is it, is there like a noticeable step down, so to speak? Or like, what does that dynamic look like? How about There's... that support? 
So I I am very fortunate to work um, in the the surgical department has a boarded surgeon, and then um, we have a clinical instructor right now. And then there's one person that's out on medical leave, and then another person that is returning um, from a residency that um, is no longer happening. So we're a very small group, uh, but the those individuals and myself work very close together. And, you know, just like any job you go into, you know, they're going to be a little bit apprehensive until they get to know you. And so I just really took the time to explain what I knew and what I could bring to the table. And then I was also, I think I've just been in this profession long enough to where if I hear something that is incorrect, I'll be like, actually, this is what we need to be doing. Or actually, you know, that's not 100% correct. Let me explain that it does. So the more I did that, the more comfortable they got with me understanding the knowledge. And I've, you know, I've heard the the board of surgeons say several times, you know, the students will ask an anesthesia question and she's like, you know what? just go ask Darcy. She's much better at explaining it because she's the one that knows all the fundamental principles and stuff like that. So I think that um, we work really well together as a team in general. So I think that that's a big part of why I just love this job. I feel respected by all the doctors here, um, which is a rarity nowadays. Um but, I, you know, when I first started, there were definitely some discrepancies. There were definitely some situations where I would see not the best sedation protocols, not the best anesthesia protocols, and I would have to just interject myself and then, you know, gain their trust and explain that there's a better way to do this. But, you know, don't take my word for it. Let me show you. Let, give me the opportunity to show you that there's a better way to do this and that the patient will benefit from it. Um, and so I, I did a lot of that when I first start, came here to Tuskegee. Um, I will never forget when I first got here, one of the clinical instructors and in surgery told me, he was like, you can use any anesthesia protocol that you want as long as it doesn't involve ketamine. And I was like, that's odd. And he was like, ketamine is a horrible drug. And my patients always wake up horrible on it. They're thrashing around or they took forever to wake up. I hate the drug. And I was like, I was like, well, I just don't have the same uh, um, experience as you have had. And so I tried talking to him about it. And we had several conversations over using ketamine, incumbent, you know, all the things. And he was still adamant that, no, I'm not using it. And so one day I just, out of the blue, I asked him, I'm like, can you just give me a week? Let me take a week and we will use ketamine as in the main induction agent for our cases for the week. And I just want to get, let me show you that your experiences are not the way that it should go. And so within that week, I, so obviously these are all healthy animals that we induced and we use ketamine midazolam as the induction agent. And that week, Every single case, when we rolled them from the surgery table to the gurney, those patients literally rolled to sternal, sat up, and were extubated as we were moving them off the table. And I could tell that he was not expecting that, nor was he really wanting that to happen because in his mind, he had <laughs> such a distaste of ketamine that he wanted to hate the drug. And then here I am showing him that it wasn't the drug, it was how he was using it that was the problem. And so that really took, you know, it made him step back. And I was thankful that he was willing to give it another shot. And now he loves it. Um, but that was just kind of my first introduction to, you know, just seeing how people can have a bias about a drug and it's usually because they were using it incorrectly or inappropriately in some form or fashion. Usually the dosage is too high. And when you take them back and you explain to them how to use it in a different manner, it's like eye opening and, you know, they suddenly are just really excited about something like that. So that's kind of what I did here at Tuskegee. I mean, there was a lot of of ways that they were doing things. And when I came in and offered a different pathway, they were like, eh, I don't know if I really want to do that, but you know what? I've seen you do something and it worked really well. So I'm going to let you have this and I want you to show me that it can be different. And with that, that's how I've been able to make some changes here. So 
I, and I'm very fortunate that they give me the opportunity to do that. I, I will say, you know, in, in my brief time in, in academia, I always felt like anesthesia team, like at least through my eyes and, and the way I viewed it kind of from outside that department, they had by far the most autonomy as technicians. Like yeah. they, they wrote the anesthesia protocols. They, they, they did that. I mean, obviously it was all signed off by faculty and everything else, but like nowhere else in the hospital would a technician write a treatment plan exactly. or, you know, or those kinds of things. And, it, and they were actually like doing that in anesthesia. And we had a few VTS um, and I, in anesthesia, and I think at least a couple of them are still there. Uh, so, I mean, it was a really, really, really good group, but also like they were, they weren't just pushing drugs and waking dogs up. Like they were writing the plans and going through them with students. And I don't think any of them were actually teaching in the classroom. I could be wrong about that, but they were doing a lot of the hands-on clinical teaching. And I think like there just really was no other department in the hospital where like you were actually determining what was going to happen for that particular pet. And I always, I always thought that was fascinating. Yeah. Well, and that's, you know, in any of the teachings that I do, even like on VSPN or, you know, going to any of these conferences, it always amazes me how technicians, credential technicians are expected to monitor anesthesia, but then have nothing to do with the drug protocol. And in my mind, that's a huge disconnect. If you don't understand what drugs you're using and why you're using them in a protocol, you're at a huge disadvantage when you go to monitor that patient. And so anesthesia is very much a team sport. It always has been. And it's there's no reason that a technician can't be fully engaged in developing the right. anesthetic drug plan and then having that conversation with the DVM about pluses, minuses of using each drug in that protocol and then having the DVM sign off on it and then the technician draw it up. Like that's, that is the perfect use of a credential yeah. technician in any veterinary setting. So, and it, if you're, if you're tasked with monitoring, you almost, have to be part of that drug protocol selection yeah. so that yeah. you fully understand the effects that the drugs are having out on your patient during the procedure itself. Yeah. And then, and then what your what the ramifications are or what the interventions need to be Absolutely. if certain things happen, like, you know, what other drugs you need to reach for or reversals or what, like, but otherwise, you know, you're just kind of blind and running from room to room because go get this, go get this, go Absolutely. get this instead of, yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, I've I've worked a number of um, surgery shifts with a, a hospital that I work with down here, and the the surgery team is is all technicians that are are only anesthesia technicians, and they do the protocols, um, like you said, Darcy. And and any time that I was working there, and I, I would say, I would go to the doctor and say, "Are you okay with this this protocol?" And they'd always be like. I don't know. You guys figure that out. <laughs> Not yeah. us. Because yeah. you guys are the ones that are going to have to monitor it. You guys are the ones that are going to have to recover it. So I feel yeah. like that's really important. Um, and I, I just want to make a, take a step back to your comment about the, the, the doctor that, that had a problem with ketamine. Um, I'm, I'm going to go down a little bit of a rabbit hole here. Uh, I was listening to a podcast because of course I was, uh, and it was about, um, uh, imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. And uh, the it, it was a veterinary pod, podcast. I, I can't remember the name of it. I, I apologize to whoever produced this. Um, but she said that with imposter syndrome, and it kind of relates to this this ketamine scenario that you brought up, is that we are constantly looking for validation for the things that we already know or the things that we already believe. So him yeah. not wanting that protocol to go well was him trying to validate the things that he already had uh, hitched his wagon to and said that this is what I know. This is what I believe. Uh, Absolutely. And, and it's, it's, it's hard for us sometimes, especially as old folks that, that get so caught up in the things that we've known for years. And then somebody comes along and shows us that it's not so terrible. Yeah. It, it, it's hard for us to let go of that, uh, that belief or that conviction that we've, that we've had with, with that one particular idea. Um, Absolutely. It, it's great that, I I applaud you for being able to, because because with with me, if I were to do that, something catastrophic would happen. I'd be like, oh. <laughs> I I I will admit I was a little bit concerned yeah, because I nervous. was like, this yeah. is either going to go good or it's going to go really bad. Yeah, and you yeah. you you're muttering under your breath, please, please don't wake up crazy. Uh-huh. Do not wake up crazy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
Um, so uh, thinking about academia, what we've talked about this with other people in academia, what changes to academia and veterinary student education would you like to see? You know, the when I was thinking about this, it brought me back to an article that I read oh, a couple years ago, and I, I can't even remember what magazine or journal I read it from, but it was titled The Death of the Vet School. And I was like, oh. that's interesting. <laughs> um, but what it basically said is that students these days don't want to be tied to a classroom. They don't want to be forced to be in a lecture hall for six to eight hours a day. And that's that's really what the freshmen and sophomores are have to deal with. They are there at 8 a.m. and they get released at 5 p.m. and they get an hour lunch. And the rest of the time, they're in the classroom. And I think there is something true to the phrase death by PowerPoint. And nowadays, and, and I've, I have two teenage sons, and so I observe them in the way that they handle high school now. And it's very, very different than when I was in high school. And they are watching their lectures on their own time. So I have one son that is an early riser that gets up early and listens to lectures. And I have one son that loves to stay up late. And so he prefers to watch the majority of his lectures in the evening. And it's just their different ways that um, they they retain information better when they're given their own timeline to watch those lectures. And then so if we were able to do that in a veterinary teaching hospital where they have recorded lectures that are requirements, they have to meet certain benchmarks, they're tested on that knowledge that they listen to from the webinars. But then the main point of doing that and shifting out of the classroom is to get these students in the clinic right off the bat and have them doing clinical skills labs starting freshman year. And they are doing clinicals hands-on learning right from the start. And it happens all throughout their fourth years. Not only are they in a, a school environment, in a lab type setting, working on animals or maybe simulators, but they're also in the vet clinics and they're observing things, they're watching things, and they're interacting with the veterinary team right off the bat. And I, I think that that is really a shift that I see happening in, in the university settings. I mean, all of these new vet schools that are popping up all over different states now, they are all, they, they all have that type of model where it's more clinical based, it's more hands-on based right, right early on. Yes, they have lecture content, but the majority of their time is spent out in the field, in the clinic, hands-on with animals. And I think that that's really the shift that we're going to see. So I, I, I think that that is the future of veterinary medicine. And I think it's for the, the betterment of veterinary medicine. You know, it's interesting you say that because uh, I think Dave, you were in it too. But I attended a lecture that Emily Kinney gave at, at IBEX, and it, the, the lecture was um, like bridging the generational gap in terms mm. of hiring and training. And she said at the podium, "What we do at IBEX, this idea of lecturing from a podium, is already out of date. Like, yep. At some point in the near yep. future, it's just going to take one conference to say." We're not doing that anymore. We shouldn't be doing it this way. This is not how people learn anymore. Yep. And then the ball will start rolling and, and this will no longer exist. And I mean, like my mind was blown. And and I think about like what you're saying too, like the same idea, like different times and you know, when like not everybody is an early riser and is going to absorb all that information at eight AM yep. and yep. or it, yeah, that, that it, it it makes a lot of sense. I, I I think that the only hesitation I have about that is I feel like that's just another way, unfortunately, to disconnect people. And like, because then then there really is very few instances where those classmates come together. But that also can't be the only reason to not do it. Um, I'm going to try to find an article. I, I highly recommend not Googling death by vet school because <laughs> it, it truly was, was literally just scary. It was, it was really just a recap of like every veterinary suicide. Oh and, my goodness. No, gonna, we don't want to go there. I'm going to have to figure out a different way to search for that because I, 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 I want to watch, I want to read that. If, if, if I had to make a guess, I believe it was an article that was in veterinary practice news, if that okay. helps, but okay. don't quote yeah, me yeah, on yeah, that. No, it, it's it been a while. Sense. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll do yeah. some, some research on my own time yeah. and see if I can find that because I, I definitely would like to see that. And I, I'm, I'm kind of that way too or like, you know, I, I'm doing a lot of lecturing now too and I'm like, there's got to be a better way than, than PowerPoints because 
yeah. Sometimes it's boring for me to give those lectures. Yeah, even, for even sure. though yeah. I, I get it's, very... it's boring to write yeah. them. It's boring, uh-huh. to yeah. but like, how uh-huh. else do you do that to potentially a hundred to two hundred people? Exactly. Like, yeah. How do you, like, yeah. I, I, I'm glad I don't make those decisions. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and, and, and like, like you said, at, at some point, it, it's going to be one conference or one group of people that says, "We're not doing it that way anymore. We're going to do it this way." And yeah. Because uh, Jeff, what was the place that that we spoke with Paige Allen? Mm-hmm. Um, Hive. And, Hive, yeah. So I, I, won- I wonder if the way that they did theirs, yeah, if that could be the way to do it, where it was just more like group discussion as opposed to like yeah. somebody lecturing to them. It's yeah, it was, it was more, more panel yeah. discussion, it, a discussion. And when we were in London at the London Vet Show, um, we met with an anesthesiologist who has his own group and and is teaching a different way to present information. And the big takeaway that I took from him was that in, to engage your audience, you have to be a storyteller. You yeah. have, you have to be willing to put yourself out there, uh, tell the stories of your experiences out in practice, what went well, what did not go well, you know, what did you learn from making a big mistake? And the more storytelling that you can do engages your audience. And then when you make those bulleted points on your next slide, they're going to be captivated by that information because you connected them to that information with the story that you told. So that's how I'm going to, at least from what I learned, I'm going to really try to kind of refocus my lectures to some degree to do that, to just kind of try to keep the audience engaged and more than just looking at a slide and yeah, taking yeah. points. I yeah, and, and who was it, Jeff? It was it was Doctor Rourke that that told us that uh, you've got to be entertaining because most of the stuff you're going to put in those bullet points, people can just look up. Exactly, yeah. so they're not yeah. there to get, get yep. the bullet points; they're there to listen to you. To and, yeah, and yeah, yeah. My my lecture style has developed a lot over the last few years, where I'm I, I'm trying to put like a minimalist approach on my slides so that people are actually listening to me and not feverishly writing down or taking a picture yep. of my slide. Cause that's not, that's not what they're there for. That's not what they paid all the money to, to come see me for. Yeah. So exactly. I, I feel like hopefully that will, whatever they figure out in the vet schools, if that's going to be the model for, for teaching in conferences, I'm, I'm all yeah. for it. Cause the PowerPoint yeah. thing is <laughs> I mean, it's what we're still doing, but man. yeah. There has to be a balance between providing the information that's important for them to learn and then a certain amount of, hey, you know, there's references out there. You can go look it up just as easy as I can to put a presentation together. So provide them with the resources that already exist and let them go read on their own where these references, you know, are providing the information, but then give them good clinical input. Yeah to it so that they can relate the information about why it's important. Mm-hmm. For sure. For sure. Um, we're getting close to our hour, so I don't want to take too much more of your time, but it, you, you mentioned veterinary anesthesia nerds earlier, and I wanted you just to touch on that for a minute or two and talk about the amazing online community you guys have built and everything that you're doing with it, because it's unbelievable. Yeah, I am. I'm re- actually just honored and privileged to be a part of it. Um, this is, you know, something that, Tasha started and brought Stephen and I on and it has just grown so much. I mean, I think we're, I think we're now over 70,000 members, which is mind blowing to me. Um, But it is, it, it is just a location where if you have any kind of interest in anesthesia or analgesia, pain management, um, you know, that's all we do. That's all we talk about every day, every single day. And, um, it is, it is a great place to come and ask questions or comment, take part in the conversations, provide your input, provide your experiences, learn from other colleagues all around the world. Um, so I'm just really fortunate to, to be a part of it. So, and I, you know, Tosh and Steven and I are, um, we've been doing, um, uh, a symposium, uh, veterinary anesthesia symposium. And so um, we were going strong until COVID hit and then we kind of ended that, but I am excited to say that we are back at it. We are going to have another symposium in April of 2024 in San Diego. We've partnered with Vet Bolus. um, And so we're doing a three-day symposium and there will be a local regional wet lab each of those three days. So we've partnered with uh, two other anesthesiologists that we've spoke with before. So it's going to be a great event, but that is really our goal is to just uh, 
talk about the best standards of practice as it relates to anesthesia and analgesia for patients out there. So we're just a, a network of people that have that similar goal in mind. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, that's great. Um, so as we're getting towards the, the end of the hour, is there anything that we haven't asked you about or, or something else that you wanted to get out to the listeners? Not that I can think of. All right. All right. All right. Um, is there anybody you would put in your seat or a topic we should think about or have a discussion about for a different episode? You know, I have you guys ever talked to Jody Nugent Deal? No, she is she's on our list. list. That, she would yeah. be an excellent person. Um, she just took a new position at UC Davis in a training position. Um, and she uh, so she she basically stepped away from the anesthesia department as the supervisor and is now doing the training for the entire UC Davis Hospital, and she is perfect for that role. So I think that that would be an excellent, awesome. an excellent guest. And she's really big on um, exotics mm-hmm. and small mm-hmm. mammal anesthesia, analgesia. But in her time as an anesthesia supervisor, she did have to go do some large animal anesthesia too. So she's kind of a, a well-rounded anesthetist there. Yeah, <laughs> funny, awesome. funny awesome. story about Jody. Um, <laughs> And when we get her on the show, we'll 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 talk about this again. I, I give a, a VSPN um, class on transfusions, and um, <laughs> so I, I gave the class. And you know, in the discussion group, uh, she she had asked, and I vaguely recognized her name. She asked me a, a question about exotics transfusions, mm-hmm. and my transfusion bible is is the one that came out. Um, a few years back with uh, Ken Yagi and, and um, Dr. Marie that I can never pronounce yeah. her last name. Holloway said, Chuck. Well, yes. There you go. Thank you. <laughs> and I was like, well, let me, let me skip, skip ahead to the chapter on exotics transfusions. And the author of that chapter was Jody. Was Jody. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, so I would, I would refer, refer you to your own research uh, to answer this question. <laughs> That's awesome. Because <laughs> I was like, I have zero experience with exotic transfusions, like nothing. That's awesome. <laughs> she's that also a runner, Dave. So, oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. yeah. And she's, she's currently the AVTAA president and I'm the okay. executive secretary. So we talk up quite a bit. And the other day um, I text her something. And she was like, give me a minute. I just got done running a 50K. And I was like, 50K? And she she was like, I was like, how long did that take you? She's like, oh, only 13 hours. I was like, insane. Yeah, she's like an ultra marathoner. (laughs) Oh, yeah. That is a a level way above me. I I max out at a half marathon. People (laughs) always ask me, they're like, when do you think you're going to do a full marathon? And I start to think about that when I start my half marathon <laughs> and and by the time I get to like 10 or 11 miles, I'm like, do this I'm again right now. No. <laughs> yeah. So a, a 50 K is, is not, it's mine. It's, it's just it's mine. Not something that I, can do. I, I, yeah. I just, I don't have, I don't have the, uh, the stamina to, to run for that long. Like my wall yeah. is like 10, 10 miles and I've, on a half marathon, I still yeah. got three more miles to go. And so that is perfect right there. That's yeah. I, I, that's, I don't want to ever do more than 13. Uh, yeah. I did one and uh, I did one and I was done. Yeah. <laughs> I, I done. used to run and I did some five K's, but that was my limit. I was like three miles and I'm done. Yeah. I, yeah. I used to do five K's, but then it got to the point where like, I, I was usually doing running five K's to train for the bigger races. I'm like, why am I paying $35? Got it. Training run on a t-shirt. That's not, that's not what I want to do anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. Yep. So we are down to your final question. This is your, would you rather question? Uh, okay. I actually have four questions loaded up for you today. Oof. So you pick one, two, three, or four. I, I put in the fourth one because Jeff, because everyone always picks two. Yeah. I hear you. Oh, so, so well one, then I'll two, pick three, four. You'll pick Ooh, four. Okay. I'll pick four. <laughs> All right. Would you rather your laundry is always slightly damp, no matter how long it's in the dryer. Or the tables and chairs that you sit at or, or sit in are always going to be slightly wobbly. Ooh, I think that I would choose the wobbly chairs because really? I am very anal retentive about laundry. <laughs> I, you know, when my husband and I first got married, he did a load of white laundry and, and, in my opinion, he purposely did this, but he claims it was an accident. He put in a pair of green shorts and it turned the entire laundry, the white load of laundry green. And I was like, you know what? I've got laundry. 23 years later, I'm like, 
hmm, I'm pretty sure you did that on purpose so that you never had to do laundry. <laughs> so I am, I'm pretty particular about my laundry. Um, I, I will do the laundry and I will fold the laundry, but I hate putting it away, but I'm very, very, um, astute to that dryer. So I'm gonna go with the wobbly chairs. Although <laughs> after a couple meals, I might be irritated, yeah. but <laughs> I, I would say because of that reason that I handle laundry the same way that you do, by the time I do put it away, it'll be dry. <laughs> Yeah, except that if you live if you live in places where it's high humidity, it doesn't I just do. stay damp; it turns moldy, and yeah, that I uh, can't. Yeah, nope. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, that that, would, that moldy, dusty smell would get to me. That's after a deal a while. breaker for sure. And plus, with the with the wobbly chairs, you can always improvise and grab some cardboard or paper and stick. Yeah, it. you can, but every time, like every time. Yeah. You just, mm. that's, just, that's true. Just keep a piece of cardboard in your wallet. And <laughs> yep, yep. Take it out. Here we go. I'm ready. <laughs> Somebody always I'm finds prepared. a loophole. With There's the, always with a loophole. Somebody always yep. finds a loophole. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Awesome. We should change right. the name of the, the question to which loophole would you like to try and figure <laughs> out? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love it. Well, Darcy, thank you so much for taking some time out to chat with us today. We really, really appreciate it. It was great to see you at IVEX a few months ago, yeah. and um, great to chat with you again today. So Jealous thank you, you, thank you very much. Yeah, yeah, that looked like a good time. It was, it yeah. was a lot of fun. Awesome, yeah. awesome. So, well, thank you guys so much for having me. It was great talking with you. Yeah. Absolutely. Caffeinators, we'll so. talk to you guys again soon. Bye, everybody. Bye. Hello, Caffeinators! We wanted to thank Dog Days Consulting for managing our social media and helping with the interior design here at the Vet Tech Cafe. They don't just do social media, they can help you identify your brand through brand coaching. The founder is a CVPM with 15 years experience in veterinary practice management. They are a small business proudly serving the veterinary community and we are thrilled to be working with them. Check them out at www.dogdaysconsulting.com. Hey, caffeinators! We would like to thank you for listening to the Vet Tech Cafe podcast today. As everybody is well aware by now, we often talk about difficult issues that face our profession. In addition, we chat with colleagues and leaders in our field who have strong opinions of these issues. Those opinions expressed by either Dave or Jeff as the hosts, or those opinions expressed by our guests, are their opinions alone and do not represent any other person, business, institution, or any other entity inside or outside of the scope of veterinary medicine. If you have any questions relating to this, please email us at vettechcafe at gmail.com or visit our website www.vettechcafe.com. Lastly, whatever platform you utilize to hear our dulcet tones, please rate and review our podcast and like and follow our Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn pages as well to see what we're up to. From all of us at the Vet Tech Cafe, have yourself a great day. Mm-hmm.